What we've been watching over the last few weeks is Jesus' journey in the last week of His life from Galilee. He had come down to Bethany. He had been with His friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so on Monday of the last week of His life, He rides down on a donkey. He tells His disciples, go get a donkey. And they go get the foal of a donkey, a colt. And he rides that colt down the Mount of Olives, down over the Kidron Valley into the eastern gate with the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. They were prophesying. They were crying out to him. They wanted to be delivered for Rome, not realizing they were fulfilling prophecy from Psalm 118 that Messiah was come. But he was not the Messiah they were looking for. And I wonder as I read that, if sometimes they didn't recognize Him because they were looking for the wrong Messiah, if we don't do the same thing. When we want Jesus, what do we want Him for? Do we just want Him most of the time, I think, to save us from our consequences instead of our sin? And, and so Jesus rides down, He gets to the gate, and He says, I'm not going to be put into power by popular opinion. So He goes back to Bethany, comes back the next day, walks by a fig tree, curses it because there's leaves on it, but there's no fruit. There were leaves that were supposed to be fruits. Then he goes to the temple, turns over the tables, and says, you've made my house a den of thieves. He quotes the Old Testament saying, my house. The first time he turned the tables over, back in John 2, he said, it's my father's house. This time he says, you've made my house a den of thieves, quoting the Old Testament. And they didn't know what to do. Nobody challenged him. Thousands of people, hundreds of priests, nobody challenges him. He goes back to Bethany, comes back on Wednesday, the disciples see the tree wither, and they go, Master, the tree's withered. And he, he goes, a fruitless fruit tree is a useless fruit tree. And he teaches them that Israel had been fruitless and therefore were, was useless in the Father's plan because the Father back in Genesis 12 had told Abraham, through you, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. Not just materially. They were going to be blessed with a relationship with the Father. And he had ordained how that would look, and they did not follow through on that. And so what happens when he's in the temple is the Pharisees come up to him and go, hey, who gave you authority to come do this yesterday and to even be here now? Who, who are you representing? Who gives you their stamp of endorsement? Because all the Pharisees and the religious leaders always depended upon somebody else's title, I'm a student of Gamaliel. I'm a student of Hillel. I'm a student of Shammai. They would quote some older rabbi and that gave them standing to be able to say and do what they did. But Jesus never did that. He never quoted anybody else. He gave His own quotes. He just spoke under His own authority. And they're like, who, who gave you this authority? Who, who are you representing? And Jesus tells them three stories. And the three stories are an indictment and, I think, a continued invitation. He indicts them with the stories. Basically, all the stories have a son in it. They're also prophetic. They're not just stories dealing with them right there, but he's telling them what's going to happen. And in the first story, there's a son who says, I don't want to obey you, Dad, and then ultimately obeys his father. Then there's a second son who says, I will obey you, who doesn't. And he's telling them that to illustrate they are the second son. And he even gets them to indict themselves. He says, which son was right? And they say, the first one. Because he says, the tax collectors and prostitutes, they're the ones who said no, but they ultimately repent. But you see their lives have changed and you still don't repent. Then he goes into the vineyard workers. 
The, the next parable is about workers in a vineyard that they didn't build a vineyard they didn't own, a vineyard they made no improvements at. All they were to do was to go work the fruit that came as a result of what the owner had done. But they got greedy. They didn't just want to get their portion. What they wanted was all of it. They wanted the glory that had, was supposed to go to the Father. And they became empire builders, their own little empire. We see a lot of that today in America. You, you have a lot of churches where people represent themselves as shepherds and people of Christ, and they built their own little empires. They really don't care about the people. They like doing what they do. And I think at some point they might have cared about the people, but somewhere along the line they started believing their own press reports. And so they built an empire. And that's what these people did. And it says they beat the first one, killed the second one, stoned the third one. And then he goes, I know I'll send my son. And when he sent his son, surely they'll respect him, but they killed the son. And he says they threw the son out of the vineyard. Jesus was prophesying what they were going to do to him. And so he asked them again. He puts it in their court and says, what will the owner do when he comes? And they said that he's going to take those wretches and throw them out and put somebody else in. They'll take care of the vineyard. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He says, you've been trained in the law. You're not going to tell people the right way. You're not going to proclaim Messiah and relationship with God. I'm going to take these fishermen from Galilee. They're going to be the ones that do it. People that were rejected by the religious leaders. And that's what he did. And it really infuriated the Pharisees. Then he goes into the next story about a marriage feast, which is even more futuristic, talking about what happens. He says there's going to be this great feast for the son. And the, those that were invited said, no, we don't want to come. We're too busy. We've got to go check our, our farm. We've got to go check our business. And, and so he says, no, go tell them. It's ready now. And they beat the servants, shamefully humiliate them, and that's what they did to people over the course of the last 2,000 years. People like Stephen, who was one of the servants that went, he was inviting his people, the, the originally invited people, and they stoned him. People like Polycarp, one of the early church fathers, who was burned. People throughout history. Tyndale. People who gave us the scripture to be able to read, who, whose lives were taken simply because they wanted people to be able to read the Scriptures. And so the Pharisees just are listening to this and they're just getting more and more incensed as they listen to this parable. And, he's, and so he says, go out and invite everybody. Just go out. The good, the bad, it doesn't matter. Bring them in here. And one guy shows up and says, I'm going to come in, but I'm going to come in under my own terms. I'm not going to dress like you want me to dress. And he doesn't have a wedding garment on. And the reason I believe that's in there is because what he's saying to the Jewish listeners is, listen, even people who have been invited in the Gentile, um, you know, the Gentile race or whatever you want to call it, the Gentiles, people outside, even some of them will not get in, even though they, they've been invited to the party because they don't want to come under my terms. And that was the issue with the Pharisees. They didn't want to come under his terms either. It's always the issue. And there's a lot of people that say they want to follow Jesus, but they want to follow a Jesus they create. You can't do that. Well, you can, but it's going to lead you into a bad place where you hear, Lord, Lord, <laughs> I did this, this, and this. And he says, depart, go away. You're not with me. I don't ever, never knew you. And those are tragic words. But as he shared that story about 
Many being called and few chosen, they were incensed. They were the chosen ones, and they wanted to kill him. And they said, we got to trap this guy. And so what they did is they got their disciples and the Herodians to come up to ask him a question about authority, you know, paying Caesar taxes. Tribute is what it was really called. And, and so as he shared that story, we saw this king's love that claims ownership because what Jesus did is he flipped their little trap and turned it into a teaching on God's ownership of all of us. He said, give to Caesar what's his, but give to God what's God's. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Whose image is on man? God. And he taught them that a king's love claims ownership over us. And so that was the first question they tried to trap him with. There were two more. The second one was a question about resurrection by people that didn't even believe in resurrection. The Sadducees. And it's funny because I get a lot of what I call straw man arguments from people in other countries. They will ask questions. You know, it's the same question. It's the, well, what about the native over in Africa? You don't care about the native over in Africa. You're just trying to put up a barrier because you don't want to bend your knee to Jesus Christ. And that's what they were doing. They're throwing up this question about something they don't even believe in. And it's very obvious to Jesus, but He deals with it. And you know what He shows us? He shows us in this a king's love that promises life. Not just life here, but life forever. You know what life is? I think I shared with you one time. Life is being able to respond to the the circumstances or the environment around you. Can a dead person do that? There's no response from a dead person. So, this is a king who promises us life. Not just here and now. If this is all there is, Paul says, we, we, we're to be pitied if we believe this mess. If this is all there is. Because what we ought to be doing is sleeping with as many women as we want and figuring everything we can do to go make money so we can have as much as we want for here and now. But we don't believe that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here today. Amen. You wouldn't be here. But the enemy keeps whispering that in our ear. Even if we're believers, he, he whispers it. You know what? I just really wonder about that. But that's what he deals with with that, that question. But then there's another question by uh, religious leaders about what's the greatest commandment? We said it at the end of our prayer this morning. The Shema. It's the same thing that every Jewish person would have responded to. They know what the greatest commandment was. And that's why this question is so important. And it's so simple. But I find in my life, sometimes the simplest things are the hardest things to apply. Because they're right there in front of you. You can't say, well, I don't really understand. You know, you can't do like your kids do when you tell them to do something. I don't understand because they don't want to do it. This is simple. But it's very, very hard to apply. And so Jesus deals with that. So then after these two attempts, the Pharisees are silenced and what Jesus does is we see His authority proclaimed the last thing he does is he turns the tables and he asks him a question. He says, hey, let me ask you a question. And you know when he does that, he, they're fixing to be put on a hot spot because he puts them there. And he asks him about who is the Christ? Who do you say the Christ is? Whose son is he? He doesn't say, do you think I'm the Christ? He's, he, he's asking them what they believe. And that's a good question. You know what? Sometimes try that in evangelism. Ask somebody. Well, tell me what you believe. 
Jesus was a master at asking questions and asking the right questions. So as we look at that today, we're going to see these three things, like I said. A king's love that promises life, a king's love that gives our life purpose, and a king's authority proclaimed. That was the question. Remember what the question was back when he started on Wednesday? Who gave you this authority? He finally gets to the point now where he, he tells them. And so let's read it over in Matthew 22. In verse 23 of Matthew 22. The same day. What day? The same day where he's been dealing with them with the parables. He's dealing with the question of authority. The same day Sadducees came up to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. Now after them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They had to huddle up. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? It's kind of like a riddle. He's given them. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Have you ever been in a, a, a classroom situation where you ask a question and you wish you hadn't asked it to start with? Because you just get this answer and you feel like stupid afterwards? He just flat out embarrassed them. And these, you got to understand, the the leaders, the religious leaders, they were, these were like the brain trust of Israel. I mean, as far as theology goes, there were no smarter people in the world than these people. And he just humiliated them. He just took them down. Every time they tried to do something, he would take them down. He would beat them to the pass, and he, he beat them to the punch, and he would flip it. He was like doing... What jujitsu on them, man. They would go to come in and he, he'd just take what they say and throw them over. And they're like, they, did, they, they were incensed at what he was doing. And I don't know if you think much about resurrection. Do you ever wonder what we're going to look like 
I mean, are we going to look like Brian or are we going to look like Tom? You know, there's, what, 20 years difference, 30 years difference? What are we going to look like? What will we do? Will we eat? Will we drink? I mean, there's certain symbology that we will do those things. Will we be able to go play golf? I mean, seriously, what, what are we going to do? You, you think about these questions about heaven and the resurrection. Does it even matter? Does the resurrection matter? Does the fact that you will not die, but you will merely move from this place to another matter to you? See, here's the thing. We become acutely aware when we go to a funeral. There's something the enemy does to each one of us to convince us. He whispers in our ear that this is what's most important here. What we, the world we see when we walk out that door. The bank accounts we have. The homes we live in. The cars we drive. The people that we're around. And... And it's all now. I, I know this is a it's a it's a very weak analogy, but if you've ever had a child, if you've got a teenager who is into their electronic devices, and you're wanting to spend time with them, and they want to spend time on that, how does that make you feel as a parent? Well, it's it's not good because you go, wow, I just want to spend time with. Them. And when they want to spend time on that device playing a stupid game that's doing nothing relationally with them, you just go, I just want to spend time with them. Well, God up in heaven wants to spend time with us. And for us to want to be here rather than there is like that teenager wanting to be on a device rather than with the parent. It's very much like that. And, and, you know, we don't have to fear death because the King promises us life. We never have to worry about that. And I'll tell you, until the bird came in and hit me when I was in that jet back in 1987, it, it had no practical reality in my everyday life. Even though I knew it, even though I believed it up here, the, the way I lived did not reflect it. And I tell you, since that day, I really feel like the most of the time, I'm not saying there's not days that I, I falter or I, I get weak, but for the majority of the time, and you can talk to Lori, you can talk to the girls, they know, and I've told them over and over and over, if anything ever happens to me, you need to know daddy's okay and I'm in a great place. I constantly reinforce that to my children and my wife. Because I want them to know that my faith is that God gives us life. You know, when you look through the, the Scriptures, He says to them, you don't know the Scriptures. Now let me explain what was going on. You, have, you, you had legalists, or, or literalists, I'm sorry, literalists, and you had oral traditionists. And, and the Sadducees were literalists and they really elevated the Torah above everything else. The first five books of the Bible. They didn't really care that much once you got past Deuteronomy. I mean, th yeah, they would acknowledge it, but for them, the most important thing was those first five books, the books of the law and what the law said. That's where they got into the argument with Jesus because they were literalists. Hey, you don't violate Sabbath. But, for the other people, the, the Pharisees, they were kind of like blue-collar religious people. We don't see them that way, but they were. They were the blue-collar theologians. The, the Sadducees were Annas, Caiaphas, 
and all the, um, the priestly line. They were the Sadducees. They were, you know, that, those, the Sadducees were the people that really focused on the law. The Pharisees were more oral traditionalists. And so they always went back and forth. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. And we know how we know that? Because over in Acts, when Paul is on trial, he tried to get an argument started between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Remember that? And, and he says, I'm just on trial because of the resurrection here. And he's bringing up this division between them. But the reason they didn't believe in the resurrection is because they didn't think Moses' law, the first five books of the Bible, taught it. And so what does Jesus do? He takes them back to Exodus chapter 3. Because in Exodus chapter 3 is the chapter on the burning bush. And Moses is in front of the burning bush. And he says, Who am I to say sent me? You remember what he said? He said, Tell him I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus quotes that right here. He says, you don't know the Scriptures, guys. You, you're sitting there, and, and let me just say, they knew that verse. I guarantee you, they were well, they'd memorized that verse. But they were looking at it through the lens of their desires and the lens of their own um, bias. And we do the same thing with other Scripture. You know what we do? We look at Scripture and we don't see stuff in there because we're biased against it because we don't want to believe it because it, it diminishes our power base on our everyday life decisions. In other words, we have to yield to His authority on that. They, they didn't want to buy into it because for them, they didn't think it taught resurrection. And Jesus took them to the Scriptures and He says, you don't know the Scriptures. That's why it's so important for us to know the Bible. Guys, one of the, the key values for SWAT is the Bible. God's Word is our starting point and our authority. And if it's your authority and you don't know it, you're going to get tripped up. Because you start saying things like, well, you know what? Homosexuals can be priests or pastors or teachers. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he goes, well, you know what? It doesn't say anything about homosexuality in the Bible. I'm like, What? <laughs> Have you read the New Testament? You ever been to 1 Corinthians? Oh, it does, yeah, but it doesn't say that word. It's a different word. I said, so what does it say? Have you ever been over in Romans chapter 1 when it says a man and a woman, they will burn with desire for their own? What do you think that's talking about? That's not talking about friendship. It, the, the, the connotation there in Romans and even in 1 Corinthians where it says these people will not inherit eternal life. But Paul says, such were some of you. That's not the kind of lifestyle that glorifies God. That's not the wedding garment. You're not wearing Christ if you want to practice that kind of lifestyle. It means you don't really know Him. Because when you know Him, it changes who you are. You can come to Him any way uh, that you are, as long as you know He's going to change you from that into what He wants you to be. He's going to put on a wedding garment for you. But if you don't know the Bible, you're not going to know that. And they were looking at the Bible with their own bias. 
This is a promise revealed in God's Word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are sown perishable, but what we put on is imperishable. We are sown in the natural body and we're put on a spiritual body. It's, it's all throughout Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, you go back and you look at the book of Job or you look at some of David's writings. They know they're going to someplace else. They know this is not all there is. Philippians 3, Paul says, our bodies will be transformed. It's all through there. And so he says, you know neither the Scriptures or, get this, God's power. And so I think it's awesome what Jesus did. When Jesus walked on the earth, and Matthew, let us see this, in Matthew 9, remember when He healed Jairus' daughter? He goes there, the people are laughing at Him. They go, she's dead, you can't do anything. He goes, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. He goes in there and she pops up. Over Nain, the city of Nain, there's a widow whose son on a casket, he's gone, he's dead. Jesus goes over there and he pops up. John 11, Lazarus has been dead four days. Lazarus! Come out! You know, somebody said, one pastor said, the reason he said Lazarus, he didn't say Lazarus, a bunch of people would have walked out of the grave. That's his power. He has the power to call us. And you know what I love? is It doesn't stop there. When Jesus goes away, Peter, over an axe, goes and Tabitha raises her from the dead. People are crying. They're, they're sad because she had done so much for people. Peter, would you please do something? And he prays and she rises from the dead. Remember over in Acts chapter 20, Eutychus pops out, falls on the ground. Paul's dove goes and lays over him. He pops up. And they were comforted. God has the power to do anything, anytime. And He shows us through His Scriptures that there is life for His people. There's life. Not just here. There's life on the other side. The question that we've got to come back to is what I asked earlier. How does that impact you on a daily basis? You walk out that door, how does knowing that impact you? Because if you live like this is your home here forever and ever and ever, it's not really impacting you. And that's convicting to me. And you know what I find is like the, the more kids I added, the more I became tempted to think that this was my home. Like, i got to be here to do this. i got to be here to take care of them. i got to make sure that things are just right. And I forgot that when I was in the plane that day that the bird came in and hit me. One of my biggest concerns was my six-week-old son, Russ, would not have a dad. And I sensed God communicating to me in the cockpit. I didn't hear a voice, but I just sensed him saying, I love him more than you do, Doug. I created him. I got him. And it was, it was so real to me. He loves our children more than we do. He loves our wives more than we do. He's God. And He promises us life. Do we believe that? You know, there's a passage in Hebrews. I don't want to go too long in this, but flip over to Hebrews real quick. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You know what that means? There's going to be angels everywhere praising God. When, when we leave this place and we go to be, there's angels. Man, I've always wanted to see an angel. I meet strangers sometimes and I swear I think they're angels, but I don't know. There was this guy one time that prayed over my son. He was a guy that was in a wheelchair that didn't have legs out in Yuma, Arizona. And he asked my wife when my son was like eight weeks, 12 weeks old, to hold my son. It was the most bizarre request. We were out on a Saturday morning and we're pa we passed him going out and we, we were going into a store and we came out. He's out in a parking lot. He was a homeless guy. And he goes, can I hold your son? And we're like, and Lori looked at me. <laughs> I looked at her. I said, um, yeah. And so we let him hold him. And you know, the, what? all he did was he held my son and he prayed over him and he wept over him. He prayed that my son would grow up to love God. And he prayed that my son would be a great man of God. And you know, and then he gave him back. It was the most bizarre thing. My wife has written about it in a, one of her blogs one time, and I, I, I sometimes I forget about it till I'm talking about angels because we went back to try to find him. We couldn't find him. We couldn't. We talked to police there. We tried, We went to the homeless shelter. Nobody ever knew who this guy was. His name was Chuck. I've never forgot his name. That was 31 years ago. Could have been an angel. Bible says sometimes you entertain angels unaware. But there's going to be thousands of angels in heaven and, and I, we're going to be there. That's what it's talking about. There's this big celebration like one you haven't seen. And it says in verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You know who that's talking about? That's the saints that have gone before us. That's, you know, that's my grandfather that I've never met. That's my brother that I never met who died when he was three days old. That's my best friend, Pat Wheeler, who died in a plane crash. They're already there. It's saints that have gone before us. We're going to see these people. And it says, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is the mediator. He's going to be wounded. He's going to have the marks. We're going to see Him. He's our mediator. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know what the blood of Abel is? That's a, it speaks justice. Or You know what the blood of Jesus speaks? Mercy. And that's what it's talking about. He's a king whose love gives life. He promises us life. And that's a great promise that we can rest on. Well, he goes from that. He says, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. Why? Because he says, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the, not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. 
Had they not been living, you know what? I mean, when he's telling Moses this back in the Old Testament, they had been dead hundreds of years. He would have said, I am the God that was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. But he says, I am, and it's present tense. He is the God of them. He's the God of the living. And that's something we can have hope in. Well, when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And he said, teacher, and what this is, this is that argument of picu nephish. And like I said, it's this argument between, uh, picu nephish says that human life takes precedence over every commandment in Judaism. The preservation of life. That's what pecu nephish means. That's a, it's a terminology that just basically says the preservation of life trumps every religious obligation. So let me give you an example. If, if you were really, really sick, but a, a fast, it was a day of fasting. They only had one day of fasting. It was the day of atonement. You could violate that law according to what the more progressive rabbis taught under pecu nephish. Because you needed to eat to preserve your life. The Sabbath. You could violate the Sabbath. So Jesus would have been much more aligned with the progressives here than the conservatives. Because the conservatives were literalists who focused primarily on just the law. In fact, you remember the story of the, um, the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. The reason they couldn't help him is because he might be dead and then they would defile themselves. Those people that were walking by were the Sadducees. They, they, they couldn't stop to help him because if they did, they would defile themselves. But they ask him this question and they're hoping he's going to take one side or the other and expose himself. And whichever side he takes, the other side is going to pounce on him and try to discredit him in front of his followers. That's what the, that's what the goal was. But in it we see... Really, what he does is reveal that a king's love that gives our life purpose. He lays out very clearly, I told you it's simple. Our purpose is what? We're born to love God. You, you want to know what your purpose in life is? You're born to love God. And he says the seconds like it, you love your neighbor. Why does he say that? Why does he elevate that up? Because that is really the gauge for our love for God. It reflects how much we love God and how we love our neighbor. That's, that's what he's saying. It's the gauge of our love for God is how we love people. We know that because over in John, 1 John, he says that in 1 John 4. He says, how can you say you love God who you don't see when you don't love the person that you do see? If you've been married for any length of time, you will know because your wife has told you, just like mine told me, that you can say you love me all you want. but I don't see it. You love this more. Right? Because if you really love me, then you would do things differently. It would impact your actions. That's what, what it was saying. So a lot of people say they love God. We were born to love God. Hey, did Israel have a reason to love God? Had God given them enough reason for them to be loyal to Him and to love Him? Yeah. What did they do? And he delivered the whole nation 
out of 400 years of slavery. The Israelite people through Joseph were the only reason that that whole culture survived in Egypt. Because remember the dreams that Pharaoh had? And how did they repay him? When they forgot about Joseph, they took his people, his relatives, his uh, grandchildren, his grandchildren's grandchildren, and they made them their slaves. He was the number two guy in all of Egypt. And for 400 years, they did that. And then God delivered them through Moses out. He brought them out. And He says back in Deuteronomy 6, right after the Shema we read, hey, I'm taking you to a land that you didn't build. I'm taking you to wells. I'm going to give you wells you didn't dig. I'm going to give you uh, vineyards that you didn't plant. I'm going to bless you in all these ways. And at the end of Deuteronomy, He says, listen, if you obey Me, your life will receive blessings. If you don't, it will receive curses. And they continually waffled back and forth through times of blessing and curses as they disobeyed because they loved themselves more. But they definitely had a reason to love God. We know that. Remember what he said in Deuteronomy 6? Be careful that you don't forget, I gave you this stuff. I gave you this stuff. And they forgot. What about us? Do we have a reason to love God? If we have a reason... Why don't we? I mean, I'm not talking about say we love Him. If we have a reason to love Him, why don't we live that more out in our life? Remember, this is talking about the heart. You capture a man's heart, you got all of it. What captures your heart? Paul went through incredible torture, beatings, punishments, because God captured his heart. And he realized that God gave him something. He gave him something that could never be taken away. When you realize what God has given you can never be taken away because Paul says it best when he says, listen, nothing separates us from the love of God. No matter how many times you blow it, no matter how bad you blow it, nothing will separate you. Not any sin you do now or have ever done or will do in the future. Now see, I was not taught that growing up. I was taught, well, you better be good. Yeah, he died on the cross, but if you know what? You better be careful. You make God angry. I wasn't stressed the love. I was stressed fear, really, to fear him. And we should have a reverent fear, but we don't live our life. We live our life understanding great, being grateful for what he's done for us. His love for us. Nobody loves us like He does. Nobody lets their son die on a cross for us like He does. Jesus died. That's why we're grateful. That's why we have a reason to love. But we're not just born to love God. We're born again to love people. You see, before we're born again, our love for people is very self-centered. Did you know that? Everything you do prior to being born again is selfishly motivated even though you may be morally good even though you may do good things because nobody does anything unselfishly you love because you like to be loved back you do nice things because you want people to go wow you know what Chuck's a good guy 
Until you have Christ's love, and then when you start loving somebody when they're not loving back to you, then you really show what it means to love. Like John Monger, who was over in a prison, and he was beaten, and he prayed for the guy beating him. Prayed that God would mercifully convert him. Not because he didn't want to get beat anymore, but because he didn't want that guy to go to hell. That's love. That's a love for people. It's an incredible love for people. James 3 says, you use your tongue to bless God and then curse man. How can you do that? Who's made in the image of God. See, see, what we do really illustrates what we love. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. It's simple. This is simple stuff. It's the application that's really part. Simple to understand, hard to apply. But when they asked him that, they thought they were going to trick him. And he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, after that, it says the Pharisees gathered together Jesus asked them a question. So he gets through with that. That's their test. And, and they really can't do anything with him. He has flipped them and flipped them and flipped them. And they're fuming. And he goes, hey, let me ask you a question. The Christ. What do you think about the Christ? Remember what he asked his disciples? Who do people say that I am? He didn't ask them that. He didn't even ask them their opinion of him. He says, what do you think about the Christ? He's trying to get them to express their belief. And he says, whose son is he? Every Jew would have said son of David. Because they knew that. It was prophesied back over in Samuel when um, it was given and said through David's, David's sons, there's going to be a ruler who rules forever. So all the people knew that. There were countless Psalms that talked about it. Even in Ezekiel it talks about it. In fact, in Ezekiel it not only says the son of David, it refers to Messiah as David, even though it wasn't. It was just a reference to him being like David. Son of David. They all knew that. So Jesus says, after they answered the son of David, He said, then how is it that David in the Spirit, key word there, in the Spirit, driven by the Holy Spirit, calls Him Lord. How does David call his son Lord? And the word there for Lord is kurios. It's the word that's used for Lord in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you know what word is used for Lord? We say it when we say the Shema. When we say, you know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Shema Israel, Adonai. It's Adonai. That's the word for Lord all throughout the Old Testament. It's the same concept. Adonai, Old Testament, Kyrios, New Testament. And so what he says is, how can David say to his son, you're my Lord? And what he does is he explains to them, where he's quoting from uh, Psalm 110, and he's basically interpreting that text for them. He's taking them back there. It's a Messianic Psalm, and he's making three definitive statements about it. One, it's Messianic. A lot of people didn't believe it was Messianic. He's clearly saying it's messianic about what he's teaching here. The second thing is what he's saying is David wrote it because he just said, you know, David, he attributed it to David. But the third thing is the most important thing he said, and that's Messiah is God. See, they did not anticipate that. In their minds, they were looking for a human military leader Messiah. 
They were not looking for God Himself to come. So when Jesus says Messiah is God, that was like almost blasphemous to them because in their minds there's one God. They didn't have the concept of Trinity. They didn't have the concept of understanding that God was three persons. Holy Spirit, Son, and Father. And so Jesus makes a definitive statement there about Messiah being God. Not a human military Messiah, but a divine one. You want to know where I get my authority from? That's where I get my authority from. You ask me about authority. See, it's the same day, remember? It's still Wednesday. They asked him earlier. We don't know how long it transpired, but he's still dealing with the same question. He says, you ask me about my authority, I'm Messiah and I'm God. Clear, very clear. Very, very clear. I travel all over the world. I deal with people from lots of different places. Muslim theology teaches Jesus was a prophet, but he wasn't the equal of Moses or Muhammad. His religion was Islam, not Christianity. Christian science teaches that Jesus was a mere man who demonstrated a divine idea, but his blood didn't cleanse anything. Hare Krishna says Jesus is another guru. The Mormons say he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. Scientologists teach that Jesus achieved as a man a state of clear, but not the highest state of spiritual being. The Unification Church leader, Sun Young Moon, says Christ must achieve perfection, and he will do it by marrying and having perfect babies. <laughs> the Unitarians teach that Christ was a man. Lots of different views about Jesus. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of Bernard Ram. He's an interpreter of the Bible, a commentator. He uh, said, if God became a man, we would expect his human life to be sinless. Jesus was. If God were to become a man, we would expect him to be a model of purity. Jesus was. If he were a man, we would expect his words to be the greatest ever spoken. Jesus' words were. If God were to become a man, we would expect Him to exert a profound power over human personality, and Jesus did. If God were to become a man, we would expect some supernatural acts. Jesus did them. And if God were to become a man, we would expect Him to manifest the love of God. And Jesus did that by dying on the cross. And so the conclusion can only be that He's God's and David's Son and David's Lord. And that's what Jesus says to end this chapter. So as we leave today, I go back to the original question, does my belief in the resurrection impact my life on a daily basis? It's a question we got to wrestle with. If it doesn't, confess it and ask God to help it, help you with that. Second, how is my love for God demonstrated? are not demonstrated. And remember, the gauge is really our love for people. Not just people we like. He said, love your enemies. That's how you know we're His. People that want to mistreat you. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I'll tell you, it's all summed up. It's all summed up in the fact that God created you and me for a relationship with Him. From the beginning, it was always that way. He always wanted a relationship. But because of our sinless, selfish self-led nature that relationship was broken 
And, and the Bible says because of that, we earn death. We earn spiritual death to where we will not experience anything good when we leave this place. We'll be in a cold, lonely, isolated, pain, and just all kinds of terrible, terrible adjectives, whatever you can think of, and we'll experience it with no hope and no help. But God in His mercy sent His Son Jesus 2,000 years ago to die on a cross. And when He died, he, he died as a perfect sacrifice. He was born to a virgin. He healed the sick, raised the dead. He said, I'm going to die on that cross. Three days later, I'm going to rise again to prove that my death would be a perfect sacrifice. And that's what happened. And the Bible says that anybody who trusts in Him, not in the acts about Him, but they trust in Him and they place their faith in Him and say, God, I want to be with you just like the thief on the cross. I want to be in your family. I want to be connected with you. The Bible says that God takes His Spirit and puts it in that person and will begin to conform that person to the image of God. And you know what will happen? They will love God and it will be seen by the way they love people. That's what He says. And so I'm going to close our time in praying. And uh, I would just ask that you remember me and Rich as we leave uh, in about two hours. So, uh, Father, thank you for this reminder.